Welcome to Betrayal Trauma Recovery. This is Anne. So a while back, we had three episodes with June, and a lot of you wrote in or you commented on those episodes and said, we want to know more. Let us know how June is doing. If you have not heard those first three episodes, please go to our website, btr.org. You can find today's episode, and we'll put the links at the very top of this episode's article so that you can go to those first and listen there so that you can hear her full story and you can get caught up because I don't want you to have to listen to the story halfway through. So those of you who have not heard those first three, stop it now, go to our website, btr.org, find this article and go listen to those first three. We did those last year. And one more thing before we talk to June, if you are not a member of Betrayal Trauma Recovery Group, please go to our website, btr.org, click on services, and look at all the information about our online support group. We have multiple sessions a day in multiple time zones. It is the least expensive, most accessible, because you can do it on your phone, computer, anywhere. You don't have to get childcare. You don't have to drive. And our coaches are the best. So it's like win, win, win. So please go to our website and check out that session schedule. June has been in some of those sessions and Betrayal Trauma Recovery has helped her out a lot and it can help you. So without further ado, June, welcome back. Thank you. Thank you for having me again. So when we first opened up this episode, she said, oh, have I got a story for you? And I don't know what it is yet. So all of us are going to listen together. All right. So we left off, I think last time we were still going through the court process of the custody issues and the divorce proceedings. And we have since concluded at least the custody for now, because my husband appealed the custody from the family court and he appealed it to the circuit court, which in my state is the next higher court. And it took us about six to nine months to get into the circuit court to have that case heard. And I can tell you that that was an eye-opening experience for me. Um, I feel like we've had all of these issues, all of this bad behavior, all of this conflict between us. And it really hasn't been between us. It's been him finding the gray areas in the order and exploiting those in ways that might be small and minor, but when you add them all up, it takes its toll. And so I was just thinking, okay, we're just going to go tell our story. There shouldn't be any changes or at least not any big changes and get this part over with and we can move on. Well, in the circuit court, it was just a different experience. The judge had a lot less patience, I feel, for listening to the conflict. I feel that some of the conflict was really labeled as marital fighting and just conflict between my husband and I, rather than abuse. And so that was just very, very problematic. The judge really didn't want to hear. I brought two witnesses. He really didn't want to hear from them. So he didn't hear from them at all, which was a problem. Although I can say that I'm happy with the outcome for the most part, the custody didn't change too much, but a lot more freedoms and discretion and kind of leeway is given in the order. And so in the BTR community, that translates to there is a lack of boundaries in our new order. And I know that is going to be a problem. It already has been a problem. So 
that's kind of what I'm dealing with right now currently is just an order for custody that I'm still the primary parent. You have the kids 75% of the time, which is great. I feel that my influence on the kids and having a safe and stable home environment for them and a connected parenting relationship with them is super important when they're going through this. Their dad does get a certain amount of days each month, and it's when he wants to see them, he can get these certain amount of days. So that creates a bit of a problem. Now, we're personal friends, so we talk a lot about this. And one of the things that surprises me, and I'd like to know how you feel about it, is that so many of the things that your soon-to-be ex does are just not smart. He doesn't seem smart at all. He just seems narcissistic and clueless and way more confident in his own abilities than he actually has. At the same time, he's able to exploit all these little areas of the law and he actually is really smart at the same time. And he is a doctor, so he's not a dummy. How do you reconcile this like crazy, nonsensical irrational behavior and all of the bad choices that he makes with this ability to exploit the law in a way that works for him. So he's sort of like this evil genius kind of thing. How do you feel about that? Yeah, so I definitely feel that that is such an accurate representation of reality of what is going on. There are times that I feel that his chaos and disorganization is really, really to his detriment, obviously to the detriment of the kids. It affects them. It's chaotic. He can't show up for appointments on time. He can't get the kids to where they need to be on time. We can't get things returned that they need, important things. But before you go on, but isn't that kind of an element of his narcissism that he doesn't care about other people's time? Like he cares about his own time. So if he's busy, if he's gaming, for example, and he's not quite done with that level then he's going to be late, right? Because he's not aware of other people. It makes him seem like he's disorganized, but do you think that that's what it is? Is like at the core, he's just not aware of other people and respectful of other people's time? I think it's a little bit of both. I definitely think there's an element of self-centeredness in the disorganization. But I also think that he is spiraling at the same time. I think that it's also an indication that he is not well. He is just not a healthy person right now. I think that it's a little bit of both. For him to exploit these little gray areas in the order that he knows he can exploit. For instance, when he takes the kids on vacation, he gets a week of vacation. It is court ordered in our old order that I would get a phone call with the kids on the middle day at a certain time. To this date, I have never gotten that phone call on the middle day at a certain time. He completely just does not let me talk to them. You know, honestly, as a mother, as a person who was assaulted by this person, as a person that is very well aware of the effects of trauma and abuse and narcissism and how those things all go together and create really the perfect storm that could be disastrous, I worry. I worry about my kids during those times. I worry that he's snapped. I worry that they are not okay and they're not safe. And I almost feel like it's happened so much at this point that I almost feel that it is purposeful on his part. Of course it's purposeful, but I almost feel that he must know that I worry 
And that's why he does it, the control. It's also that he knows that I will worry about the kids by him not letting me have access to them on a phone call. There's a little bit of both things going on. He's definitely spiraling. I've had several people in the community come and tell me that they have seen problematic behavior from him. I've had people tell me that they have heard things that have happened, like at his previous workplace. I've had two people tell me that that they've heard that he assaulted a female at his previous workplace. He has since lost his job because he missed several days of work, missed shifts, didn't show up on time. There were several other people that complained of his treatment of patients, how he was medically treating them. And so I feel like some of that is also really an indication of his unhealthiness. Mm -hmm. Because with a lot of abusive men, they pick and choose. They're very together at their job. At church, they look really good. And at home, it's when they, quote unquote, lose their temper, but they don't lose it anywhere else because it's a display of control, right, at home. But you're saying his dysfunction is starting to leak out into his public persona. Yes, the dysfunction definitely is. Now, that is something different than the anger and abuse. I even feel like sometimes he uses the dysfunction as a ploy to get people to feel sorry for him. Like he's this broken down dad that just wants his kids so much and he's just floundering without them. And he's a single dad and it's so hard for him because he's a victim, right? Yes. And I feel like that's very much what's going on now. On dating sites, for example, he's on all the dating sites and he clearly says, oh, I'm a single dad. Here's a bunch of pictures of my kids. And by the way, I have my kids 50-50. Like somehow that's supposed to mean that he is a better dad or people can trust him more. But that's a lie. He doesn't have them 50-50. That is a lie. He does not have them 50-50. Mine says the same thing. He's got these pictures of him as a dad. And he's also got this like Christian for life. I love Jesus stuff going on on his dating profiles. And I'm like... Okay, but you don't obey the commandments, so whatever. I think that's really interesting because if he did start dating someone, they would really soon see that he didn't have them 50-50. So he's like really not setting himself up for a good relationship. Exactly right. I think that also a lot of these guys, they see mechanisms that can give them instant trust. So yes, being a Christian is one thing that can give them instant trust. Being a single dad is one thing that can give them instant trust with whoever their next person will be to be their supply. Another thing that I found very interesting when we went to court this past time is we were going over the support, of course, because that's all wrapped up in custody. And he testified that the church, his church, my church, our religion, our church has been paying for his mortgage and car payment. And that is almost $2,000 a month. This person is a doctor. He makes $24,000 a month. He makes well over $300,000 a year. He sat there and said the church was paying for his expenses because he is so broke that he cannot even pay for these things. Well, my lawyer (laughs) 
being prepared, she had subpoenaed all of his bank records, all of his pay stubs, you know, everything like that, all of the financials. And the intern went through it and categorized things by item. And it turns out that he has spent thousands of dollars on liquor, hundreds of dollars on pornography. When we say liquor, I just want for the audience to know that June's soon-to-be ex and June are members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Alcohol is something they do not do. So here is his clergy who is paying his house payment when this man is going out and buying alcohol, which is really, really a big deal. And he had contributed tens of thousands of dollars into his own retirement during this time that the church was paying for his expenses. And acting like, oh, I'm going through so much. Help me. Right. Right. And my ex-wife took all of my money. Really, anyone that has gone through the courts would know it's a straight calculation. It's a straight calculation. After this, I became very, very disturbed. I was alarmed. I know the process a little bit of receiving church welfare. My dad was a bishop. He had to help people meet their urgent and emergent needs on occasion. And I began to really think, I need to know the story of this. I need to know how far this went. And mind you, that the bishop was the same bishop that was spiritually abusive to me. And so this bishop had very, very clearly taken a side and financially had even taken a side in this divorce where he chose to support my husband and not me really in him paying these expenses, thousands of dollars a month for these things. He has really enabled him to continue legal abuse and also continue really unhealthy behaviors and to pay for those. Yeah, because if he had been paying you the $2,000 a month so you could buy groceries... I mean, it's crazy. Sorry. I just might go. If, for our listeners, steam and fume and fire is coming out of my ears right now. Yes. And really, if he had just been paying his own mortgage and his own car payment, then maybe he would not have as much money to pay his lawyer and we could move on and get everything wrapped up and not be in constant legal battle. Right. And not have to go to the next higher court up and all that business. Exactly. So I became very alarmed, like I said, and as soon as court was over, I began my research. So in my research, I reached out to the congregation that he currently attends, the leader of it, which is a bishop. And by this point, the previous bishop had been released from that position and a new bishop was put in. For listeners who are not familiar, all of the clergy in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is volunteer. And so someone is asked or quote-unquote called to be the leader of the congregation for a period of usually around five years, three to five years, depending, maybe six years, it depends. And then a new volunteer is called and it just rotates around. And so you're saying that the old bishop was released and a new volunteer bishop was called. Exactly. So I felt safe reaching out to this new bishop because he was not the same one that I spoke about on the earlier podcasts who was very spiritually abusive. So I reached out to this new bishop. I also reached out to the leader above him, which is a stake president. And I also reached out to the area authority. So the person above him, even. 
just to get some answers. I had emailed a couple times with no response and explained the situation in emails and I just wasn't getting any response. And so I just kept kind of adding more people to these emails, trying to get some sort of answers on how long has this been going on? And the thing that really concerned me is that nothing was verified with me because we are still married. I am still the property owner of these things that the church was paying on. I'm still on the loan for the house. I'm still on the loan for the car. That is still legally my property and nothing was verified with me. And so in that process, I learned mine and my children's records had been transferred back to that congregation. So when June says records, and we're, I am so sorry for people who are like, we don't want to know the ins and outs of your church, but the ins and outs do help understand the context of why this is such a big deal. So that's why we're explaining it. So the congregations are set up in geographical areas. So you do not choose what congregation you go to. You're basically assigned based on your geographical area, and each congregation is called a ward, and each congregation has a boundary to it. And you can have your records transferred in or out depending on your situation. And so what she is saying is that she had had her records transferred out with the impending divorce, and that the records were back with that congregation where her soon-to-be ex is going. So where your records are is where you attend church. So you find out that your records are in his congregation, And then what happens? And so upon finding that out, I just set up a meeting with the bishop because I figure... Oh, he's my bishop, right? This is my congregation. Yeah. He's my bishop now. Yes. And so I set up a meeting. I went and talked to him. I brought up the misuse and misappropriation of fast offerings, which are like tithes in a way. It's like a collection plate in another church or another religion. And so I brought this up to the bishop. I told him I have documentation of the discretionary spending that I don't feel like the church would approve of. And I was under the impression that these things are heavily monitored. And why on earth is a man that is making $300,000 a year receiving this assistance when I know for a fact that we have people living in dire poverty in the congregation. We met for about an hour. The bishop listened to me. He stated that he doesn't know when this started, but that he did make a couple of payments for my husband. And he did not verify any of this because he felt like there was a need. And he just took him at face value. And so I also talked to him about the history and the abuse, the betrayal, the trauma, the assault, all of those things. And he was very gracious to listen. And we had a very, very good discussion. I felt very, very hopeful after meeting with him. We had talked about how to deal with some of these behaviors of my husband and if this bishop had any interest in doing that because it was never dealt with. You mean like a church court or holding boundaries or some things like that? Yes. But now that I'm in the ward and my children's records are in the ward, how to navigate that situation. Especially if you have a protective order. You don't have one now, but if you did, if you did get one. Yeah. I did. Yes. Yes. And he said he really didn't know anything about the situation or anything like that. He said that he was more interested in current things that were happening, current abuse, 
So I describe some situations and post-separation abuse, post-divorce abuse is a lot harder to really identify. It can just look like someone just being a jerk to the other parent. But I did describe situations of my husband swearing at me at drop-off and exchange, purposely keeping the kids from talking to me, situations that I would say are very much in this gray area that one or two things by themselves don't really do anything. But like I said, I've been living this for over two years and I can tell you it's just repeated abuse. It's just in a different form. So it was very interesting to hear his take on that. I was able to ask him what kind of training he had for dealing with abuse and trauma. And he had said that he has the spirit and that's the training. He said that? I have the spirit and that's the training? Yeah, that's all the training that he needed. Yeah, well, oh my gosh. Because narcissists seem like they're telling the truth. And so it quote unquote feels right. Yes. I tried to gently push back on that a little. And I just said, okay, but you realize that when you gave him this money, you would have had that same discernment, the spirit, and it didn't work right? Like you understand that. And I could see the wheels were turning. I could see that he was thinking about that. I also took in the policy on abuse. The church has come out with a policy. I think it was in March of 2018. And it's very, very clear. There's a very clear directive that abuse is not to be tolerated and that people who come reporting abuse in any form, they should be believed And that false accusations are just not the norm. In fact, they are very, very rare. And so I really came with that policy in hand. Before you go on, the false accusations are usually from the abuser, right? The abuser is usually saying, I was abused. Yeah, so and I referred to it at different points in our conversation. And I said, okay, so now that I'm reporting this, is it your intention to look into this and to handle it in the way that is conducive with the church's own policy. And again, I felt like he had probably good intentions, but he said, well, yes, you know, I'll bring him in here and I'll talk to him. Every story has two sides. Oh, no, it doesn't. The abuser is never going to be like, oh yeah, I was the abuser. And then he's going to say, okay, then let's go forward with the policy. But if the abuser goes in and says, no, that's not what happened. She's the abuser. Then they're just left confused. And they're like, well, I don't know what to do. And I don't know what this policy means now. Yeah. And this is where I feel like the behaviors of my husband and the acting really come into play. You mean his like hypocritical slash I'm the victim slash I'm a good guy stuff? Yes. I described this actually for the bishop. I said I was married to this person, you know, for over a decade. I know how this goes. I said, he will come in here and he will say, I'm so sorry. I just feel so horrible and I'm just so broken and damaged. And I said, and then he will start crying. And my husband is a very big guy. To see a grown man cry is shocking. And because it is so shocking, we think, oh my gosh, this is so shocking. He must be in complete and utter turmoil. And then because we're distracted in our thinking and not centering on the subject matter of what we wanted to talk to him about, then it kind of gets swept under the rug and that's that. 
And I said, I've seen him do this so many times. And doesn't he also start blaming you and telling him how abusive you were and all the bad things you did and that you got put in jail? For those of you, if you haven't listened, she ended up with a night in jail. So if you haven't listened, you'll want to listen to that. So I'm sure then he pulls that out of the hat, right? Well, she went to jail or whatever. Yes. And then I kidnapped the kids, remember, when he had the restraining order. To build my own credibility, I am very upfront with those things. Uh, The arrest has now been expunged. And so legally, I do not have to say that I have been arrested anymore. But usually to build my credibility, I'm very upfront with that. There's not a lot of shame there for me at all anymore. So I really did tell the bishop that I was very concerned because not only does he come in here and act like this, but he's also looking like it. He looks disheveled. And remember, people are telling me he doesn't look so good. And so I said, everything that you're seeing and that you're hearing will be telling you that, oh, yeah, maybe he does have a plausible story. Maybe this is the truth. And that is what I think is so harmful about this situation in particular is that he is using his own unhealthiness as a means to be able to prove his story that he is so despondent and just in despair at what has happened when that is not the truth. I was very clear also, I told the bishop, I will be the first person to know of true repentance by my husband. I will be the first person to see it. I will be able to see and clearly be able to identify changed behavior. Yeah. If you want to know if someone's repented, ask the victim. Yes. So I got into a really important discussion with him about that. And I am so glad that I did because I asked him, how do you assess for repentance? How do you assess for changed behavior? Do you ask the victim? Do you ask the person that it was directed to? And he said, well, yeah, of course we would. But you're like, but they never have. They never have with me. Exactly. From all the women in our community, we've got over 40,000 women. Not all of them are members of the Church of Jesus Christ. But for the ones that I talk to, I can't remember one of them being asked. Maybe when they're still married and they're both in the same ward. But if they're in a separate ward, they don't call the victim. Exactly. So I had a really important discussion with him about that. I also said that one point in the marriage with a previous bishop, this was a completely different bishop, that my husband had admitted to infidelity and that we had gone to the bishop. We were trying to work through it. This was sort of at the codependent phase of my process. When you were doing the codependent stuff? Yeah, I was doing the codependent thing with my husband and really trying to connect. And the more that we could connect, the less that he would have these behaviors. Yeah, the more you attach to your abuser, the less he would abuse you during that stage. Well, that's called trauma bonding, actually. (laughs) Yeah, so we did go to the bishop, you know, several years ago. And this bishop actually did call him to like a church disciplinary council. And it was very small. It was just talking to a few of the leaders about the nature of the harm that was done. And at the time, this bishop said... I would invite you to come, but I feel that you're just too upset and too angry. And there is no place for that there at this practice. What? There's no place for the victim to tell her experience. 
Yes, there's no place for your anger within the council because it's a council of love. And we want to be able to fill the spirit. Oh, you don't have any right to be angry and your anger is unjustified, basically. That's just so crazy. Right. And so I didn't end up going at all. Like I said, this was several years ago. I didn't end up going. I solely relied on my husband to tell me what the outcome of that particular event was. And he said that the brethren had prayed about it and everyone had the spiritual experience that he was changed and that there was true repentance. And still, I kind of wonder actually what had happened. Yeah, because you don't know what went down. I don't know. So I told my current bishop that I felt like that was harmful. The more that I've proceeded and progressed in my own healing, the more that I have recognized anger is such a healthy thing. Anger and being upset and frustrated and worried. is totally normal. How else would you be? Exactly. It's completely normal. And I said, it even kept me safe. It kept me safe from being with this person intimately, emotionally, physically, spiritually, it kept me safe at that time. And that is the only thing that kept me safe. Yeah, because you sure weren't doing it. Exactly. Like I said, I didn't realize it at the time because I was in this codependent model of therapy. We've all been there, so don't feel bad. (laughs) I told this current bishop that I just feel like the anger that I was labeled with and that being harmful was really, really nothing compared to the harm that I had suffered in my marital vows being betrayed and in putting my unborn child at risk because I was 37 weeks pregnant at the time that my husband was intimate with another person. In all of these lies and deceptions and betrayals that, of course, I would be angry. Of course, I would be so upset and distraught and everything else. And so we had another discussion about legitimate anger. And I said, I don't see anger as a bad emotion. No emotion is bad. They just have different purposes and different meanings. Well, and it also depends on what caused it. If your abusive perceptions of the woman should make the meal are causing your anger, and then she doesn't make the meal, and that's why you're getting mad, then the abusive perceptions are what's causing the anger rather than healthy perceptions. Does that make sense? I think it also depends on if your perceptions are coming from a healthy place or if your perceptions are coming from an entitled objectification sort of power control manipulation place too. And if they come from that place, that means that is abuse. I would say the abuser who's angry because he's entitled to a hot meal and the wife didn't get it together that day and he flies off the hand, that's abuse. That is past the point of anger into abuse. Right. But For people who don't know about abuse, they're just like, well, they're both anger. They don't recognize the difference between the two. Yeah. Exactly. So we had another really important discussion of that mechanism of abuse and violence, really, and betrayal trauma. I took the time to educate him a little bit on betrayal trauma, on how women feel in this situation, and how devastating it is, and how expendable I felt that when the betrayals reached a point for me that my boundary was divorce and separation, and not to mention I was unsafe because I was assaulted. And that was just a boundary for me that I had to do what I did. I tried to explain that to him and I felt like it was eye-opening. I felt like it was a good conversation. It was eye-opening for you or him? For him. 
I felt like it was eye-opening for him. I bet he'll ponder the stuff you said. I mean, I don't know, but my guess is that after your conversation, and maybe you know, when was this? Com- when did you have this conversation? I had this conversation about a week ago. Okay, so it's only been a week. But my guess is that over time, he'll ponder it, and he'll either move closer to the truth, and he'll get softer toward you, and more protective of you, and he'll set more boundaries around him, or he'll get farther away from the truth and start treating you worse and start treating the abuser better. It's going to go one way or the other the more he ponders it. He's either going to start making excuses for the falsities and dig himself deeper that way, or he's going to get better. Does that make sense? But only time will tell. Exactly. And so I felt like it was a lot of planting seeds and just sharing my truth with him, sharing some of the knowledge that I have with him that he does not have about these things and just kind of seeing where the chips lie. We're going to pause here and continue the interview with June next week. I want to make it very clear that this is not just a problem in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints with this particular bishop. We talk to women from every faith paradigm and every religion, Catholic, evangelical, Jewish, whatever, we could go on and on, and they've all had experiences like this with clergy. So I'm not trying to make this about one particular religion. This is about a societal issue. And as more people understand abuse, then more people can stop it. Similarly, it's also an issue that women run into over and over again with therapists. They're trying to get help, the therapist doesn't understand abuse, and they just run into this sort of codependent mode over and over and over. At BTR, that is why we use the abuse model, and that is why we use the trauma model. And our Betrayal Trauma Recovery Group is the best group out there for this. It runs multiple times a day in multiple time zones. So please go to btr.org and click on services to learn more. If this podcast is helpful to you, please rate it on iTunes or your other podcasting apps. Every single one of your ratings helps isolated women find us. So stay tuned for the continuation of June's interview next week. And until next week, stay safe out there.